I hope you were able to be here last week. Bob Cochran spoke, and he talked about the ministry that he and Susan have had in Indonesia with Wycliffe Bible translators the past 10 or 12 years. And one of the things that was so fascinating was to see the unbridled joy that people had when they heard the scriptures in their own language for the first time, or when they saw for the first time the the panorama or the drama of scripture. And uh, they just instinctively recognized that they were receiving a gift that was so precious that it should be celebrated. There should be great delight there. But I'll be honest with you, as I sat there last week listening to Bob, uh, I couldn't help but think of the contrast between their experience and the common experience of Christians here in America. As Bob explained, many of them have basically small snippets of God's Word, and yet we are swimming in Bibles. Uh, I went home and counted this week. I hadn't done it in a while. How many Bibles do I own? Brenda and I have 31 Bibles in our house. I have another eight Bibles in my office. I have 10 or 12 uh, New Testaments in addition to that, plus... I, like you, I have this free app, okay? It's free, the Version app. It has 60 English translations of the Bible. We have churches that preach the Bible. We have podcasts. We have Bible studies. And these are all good things. And yet it is relatively rare to find people, even Christians, who delight in God's word, who celebrate this precious gift we have that is able to transform our hearts, our relationships, our community, our world. And understand here at Faith, we have a high view of Scripture, okay? We believe it all from Genesis to the maps. We, we believe it all. We understand that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. Uh, the flower fades, grass withers, but the Word of our God stands forever. Uh, the Word is living and active. It's sharper than the two. It can penetrate to the deepest part of our being, okay? So we, we have a high view of Scripture, and yet it is possible It's actually very common to have a high view of Scripture and yet a low experience of God through the Scripture. It is possible to check all the boxes, check, I understand, yep, I'm all on board, and yet experience so very little of God through the Scriptures. You know who should be a warning to us, a sober warning to us? The Pharisees in Jesus' day, okay? They had a high view of Scripture, but they absolutely missed God. They studied the Scripture. They memorized the Scripture. They were meticulous in following the details, and yet they ended up as mean, legalistic people. How do we know they missed God? Well, when God showed up in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and they heard his teaching, you know what their reaction was? Blasphemy. They wanted to kill him, okay? They, they are a testament to the fact that it's possible to have a high view of Scripture and a low experience of God. And so what we're going to do today is somewhat of a follow-up from last week is we're going to look at at, uh, a chapter of Scripture that kind of lays out a grid. This is how we can put ourselves in a position 
to experience God deeply through the scriptures. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It's Psalm 119, okay? It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Don't worry, we're not going to look at every one of them. But all but about three of these verses talk about God's word, explicitly mention God's word in some form. There are 22 stanzas, one stanza for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this is the power of God's word from A to Z. Uh, there are eight verses in each stanza and every, the first line and every, every, every uh, uh, the first line begins with the same letter. Aleph for the first letter, eight verses it begins. So it's a, it's a masterful, it's a masterful, uh, very intricate, intricately designed chapter. And there are at least nine different terms that are used to describe God's truth. It speaks of God's law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, judgments, path, word, and way. And so these different terms signify different aspects, different emphases and functions of God's truth. And the psalmist had so saturated his mind and his heart with scripture that he was able to describe it with great, great nuance and great precision. And my challenge for you today is to make it your ambition, make it your ambition, leave this place with this ambition to experience God's word the way the psalmist did in Psalm 119. I see we have lots of students here today. I have to tell you, we love having students here. Some of you are graduating and uh, you are abandoning us. You are moving off <laughs> and uh, we are going to miss you. Uh, others of you are going to be leaving for the summer. And uh, I thought about you a lot this week because a lot of you have made great gains this past year at, at, at school, and you're going to leave the structure and the fellowship of, of this school, and you're going to go off, and some of you are going to be fairly isolated. It would be very easy, very natural for you to lose some of the gains that you've made. I, I would just challenge you. I would plead with you. Take this perspective we're going to talk about today and, and leave this place with a, a, an ambition to experience God deeply through his word. You have to do that. You can't take a break from God uh, just because you're taking a break this summer. Okay, so we're going to look at three aspects, three things that are essential if we want to experience God deeply through his word. First, Psalm 119 illustrates that a deep experience of God through his word involves delight. It involves delight. And you know if somebody delights in something uh, by how much they think about it and how much they talk about it. It's never far from, far from your mind or from your word. So I get this way about woodworking sometimes. Lowell, you do too. Uh, it's your delight. Some of you, it's recipes or children or traveling or sports. It can be any number of things. But when you read Psalm 119, the thing that, that, that was his delight was God's word. Uh, and he expressed that delight back to God. And this is the whole psalm. This is what's advocated in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 sets up the whole book of Psalms. He said, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. What? But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in it he meditates day and night. That's what we see modeled here in Psalm 119. Verses 12 through 16, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. 
I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. He said, I delight in your statutes. And so a statute is something that is fixed. It's permanent. It's something that's time-tested and, and true. And so the psalmist took delight in the things of God that never changed. What a brilliant thing to do. Because this world changes so much, and, and this week, you can't predict what you're going to experience this week. You don't know if you're going to experience great joy or great sorrow. And so it's wise to delight, not in your circumstances, but in the things that never change, to delight in the statutes of God. They reveal the things that never change, that bring stability to this life. And so this means a lot of things. Among other things, and this is good news, you don't have to live your life by trial and error, okay? Oh, look, there's a crowd. I think I'll follow them and see where that leads. Oh, here's a new philosophy. I think I'll give it a test drive and see where that leads me in my life. If you've ever tried this, you know this is a brutal, a brutal way to live your life. Jesus called it the broad path. He said, if you want to take this path... It is a broad path. I mean, you're going to find a lot of traveling companions. The problem is, is that it leads to destruction. You're, you are marching off a cliff. He gave another option. He says, there's the narrow path. You're not going to have as many people on that path. You don't have as many options, but it's a narrow path. But the good news is it leads to life. Uh, Jeremiah 6 calls it the, the ancient paths. And so these are time-tested paths. You don't have to just live by trial and error. They're established, time-tested ways of living your life. That's what the psalmist understood when he, when he saw the, the statutes of God. And so he delighted in them. Look at verse 24. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. And so a testimony, these, these scriptures, they testified to him. They, they bore witness about how we should live our lives. If you know that you need wise counselors, and I hope you know that, you don't have all the knowledge, all the wisdom you need. If you know you need wise counselors, delight in God's testimonies. God's truth will speak to you, will show you how to live your life. Look at verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. And this is an observable phenomenon. Delight leads to obedience. What you delight in, you will follow. And so because he delighted in God's commandments, he had this burning desire to be obedient. And the same is true for us. Honestly, if you don't delight in God's commandments, you won't have a burning desire to obey. If you think God's commandments, instead of being a delight, if you think they're a burden or you think they're irrelevant or you think they're outdated, they're for other people in other cultures, then you won't delight in them. You won't, you won't have this desire to obey. You'll find a hundred reasons why that applies to other people, but not to me. After the first service, uh, somebody told me, basically she said, when you said that, I thought of, uh, if you don't delight in God's worth, it's like trying to fit the glass slipper on Cinderella's uh, ugly stepsisters, okay? It just will not fit, okay? But if you delight in God's word, the commandments fit. They, they, they are, are good. 
And so delight leads to obedience. And understand here, I'm not suggesting that you fake it and pretend to delight in God's word when you really don't, when you really consider it a pain and an unnecessary burden in your life. I'm suggesting that you get in touch with the deepest passion of your heart. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him alone, he has put his spirit within you, the same spirit that inspired the word lives within you. And you are able to say with Paul in, in Romans 7, he said, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He said, he said, my flesh is very much alive, okay? I have these urges to do things that I shouldn't do. But in the deepest part of my being, I joyfully concur with the law of God. And so every believer should be able to say that. That's not supposed to be the rare exception. And so if you were a follower of Christ and you would have to say, honestly, I don't delight in God's word. I'm not drawn toward it. When I hear it, I don't internally say, yes, that's true. And I would, I would, I would say you need, you need to urgently find out why that's the case. Where is your delight? Why don't you delight in God's word? That, that's, that's not normal for a follower of Christ. And it could be any number of things. For you, it could be some stronghold. It could be a misperception of who God is. It could just be the accumulated burdens of life. It could be any number of things. But you, you have to understand why that is because delight leads to obedience. And that was my experience. When I came to Christ, I, I had this superstitious attitude toward the Bible. I just thought it was a special book and you should revere it. Uh, when I trusted Christ, God put his spirit within, in me. I immediately had this, this internal testimony. Yes, your word is true. And I found it nourishing and, uh, and life-giving. When I was in seminary, I had a, a friend from Japan. His name was Mako. And uh, one semester break, I saw him on campus, and I just, just asked him kind of off the cuff. I said, Mako, what you been doing? And this was up on the North Shore of Chicago. And I would have assumed he would have said, well, we're, we're taking some trips down to the city uh, to see the sights, sleeping in late, watching movies. We're just, just relaxing. What Mako told me was, he said, I, I find myself reading the Bible for hours every day. My wife wants me to take a break so I can spend time with her and play with our son. But I find it, find it so fascinating, <laughs> I have a hard time putting it down. Now, Mako might have had a little problem with balance, but every time I, I think of him, I'm like, there's a man who delights in the law of God. Nobody has to tell Mako, don't forget to have your quiet. You can't pull him away from the scripture. And so that was the psalmist. That, that puts him in a place to hear God's voice. Second, Psalm 119 illustrates that a deep experience of God through his word involves the intention, the intention uh, to meditate and obey. It's really striking when you read Psalm 119. I'd encourage you to read it through at one sitting when you can. But uh, the author declares great boldness what he intends to do with God's statutes, God's commands, God's testimonies. He declares very boldly, he says, it is my intention to meditate and to obey. And as we read these scriptures, examine your own heart and say, is this true about me? Is this, this reflected in my life? Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. What was his intention? His intention was to not sin. What was his strategy? 
treasuring up God's word in his heart, valuing it as something so precious that he held it dear. He, he held it in the, the command and control center of his life. And so he meditated on it. He mulled it over and over, pondering what God had said. Look at verses 15 and 16. And again, this is bold. He says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard, meaning take into account, live out your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. And so he declares, I will meditate. I will delight. I will not forget your work. I suspect that most of us, maybe many of us, most of us have a a much more cautious approach. God, if we're honest, we wouldn't say this out loud, but God, I may or may not meditate tomorrow. And depending on what what I find, I may or may not live it out, right? And it's just kind of we keep our options open. We don't want to, boy, the last thing we want to do is hem ourselves in. But we tend to think that it's presumptuous to declare our intentions spiritually. But it may be that we're just playing it safe because we have not resolved in our heart. God, it is my intent, it's my desire to obey. Therefore, it's my intention to meditate, soak in your scripture. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within me. And we're going to see in the third point that the psalmist was not relying on his own strength. This wasn't, this wasn't Peter saying, Jesus, everybody else will run away, but I will never uh, deny you. This, this is not that. He's going to cry out to God for obedience, but his will was fully engaged. He had purposed in his heart to meditate on and obey God's truth. And so let's think about the term meditate. It has a variety of different connotations. Probably its most basic meaning is to murmur or to to, uh, mutter something over and over. And that's what we do when we meditate. We murmur to ourselves or we mutter over and over uh, some truth. For example, uh, Psalm 46, uh, be still or cease striving and know that I am God. If you wanted to meditate on that, you would mutter it to yourself. God, here I am. I want to be still. I want to quiet my busy heart. God, my brain is screaming. My, my life is so busy. God, help me cease striving. Help me be still. God, I want to know that you are God. I want to know in the deepest part of my being experientially, I want to know that you are God. Not just that you're some God out there. But I want to know that you are my God. I want to quit playing God in my life. God, help me be still and know that you are God. God, I can't live my life on my own. I have to live with this deep abiding knowledge that you are God. And so you mutter, you meditate, you murmur about the scripture. And so I want to take, I want to take an informal poll, okay? I want to find out how many of you... Uh, are really pretty good at worrying, okay? If you're good at worrying, when I say three, I want you to raise your hand. Don't be shy here. One, two, three. Okay, that's good news, okay? Because John Ortberg says, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. It's the same process. All you're doing is just mulling over something. I know that's kind of a sucker punch. I'm sorry. But it's, it, that's, it's the same process. You've got something on your mind. You can't stop thinking about it. You mull it over, mull it over. That's what you do when you meditate. Isaiah 31, the term meditate is used of a lion growling over its prey. 
okay? So I hope I don't trigger anybody here, but it's the idea of a lion has killed a lamb and it is savoring that lamb. How does a lion meditate on a lamb? He chews it up and swallows it, okay? That's a good picture of what we do when we meditate. We take God's word, we bring it in, we assimilate it in the deepest part of our being. We don't gulp it down and move on to something else. No, we savor it. We, we mull it over in our minds, in our hearts. We let it have a settled place in our lives so that the word of Christ dwells richly within us. And this doesn't happen by accident. We have to intend to meditate on scripture. Look at verses 105 and 106. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, God, without your word, I'm going to trip and stumble and fall. I'm going to break my nose. I'm going to break my, I'm in a bad way if I don't have your word. Okay, so why, why is that important? Or what's the takeaway? I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. And again, that may sound very presumptuous. How can he say that? How can he say that? Well, again, think of the converse. The converse is, God, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. And I may or may not take your advice, honestly. That's kind of what we're saying when we go in and we say, well, I'll, I'll see what you show me. And so he had this, this intention to obey what God had shown him. Verse 112, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. And so you find this type of bold praying all over the Psalm 119. And so I would just ask you, just silently ask, answer this question. Is it your intention? I mean, do you intend this week to meditate on God's word, delight in it, meditate on God's word, and by his grace to live out whatever he shows you? Okay, I mean, is that your settled intention? Uh, If it is, praise God. If it's not, I would say go to God. Talk to a friend. You got to find out why that's the case, why you're holding God at arm's length. And honestly, and and this is, I don't know how to say it. One, One way to say it is this. I found for myself, sometimes the Bible can get between me and God. Like if I am talking to you, say I'm talking to you, if I'm, if I'm doing this, uh, I'm talking about you, I'm thinking about you, but I never talk to you, then I'm putting this, this book between me and you. Sometimes I do that with God. I'm fascinated with the word, but do I really go to God and engage him? Do I really say, God, what you've shown me, that I will do. Third, Psalm 119 illustrates that a deep experience of God through his word involves crying out to him in faith. We have to cry out to him in faith. And so throughout this psalm, the the psalmist pleads with God to enable him to understand and obey the truth. He understood that unless God empowered him, his intentions would be nothing more than wishful thinking. And the psalmist understood that there's nothing incompatible between his effort and God's grace, between meditating on God's word and God empowering him to teach him and, and live it out. And so he, had a, he was very diligent in seeking God, and yet he knew that God had to teach him and make him obedience. And so verses 9 and 10 are a great exper- expression of this. He writes, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. 
And then he says this, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. In the same breath, God, I have sought you with all my heart, but you're the one that has to keep me from wandering from your commands. And so he knew that all his seeking would be in vain if God did not empower him. The same was true of the learning process itself. Look at verse 64. He says, the earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. If he was going to learn, God had to teach him. Verse 73, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 102, I have not turned aside from your ordinances. You yourself have taught me. He acknowledged, God, if there's anything I've learned, if I've kept on the path, it's because you have taught me. And verse 107 is, is desperate. And uh, sometimes this should be our cry to God as well. He said, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. So there are going to be times when you are at the end of your rope. You're like, God, I am afflicted. You know, God, what I'm going through. If you don't revive me, if you don't give me life again, I'm not going to make it. And so our effort is necessary, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. If God doesn't empower, we won't learn and we won't obey. And so we cry out to God for his power, for his wisdom, for his teaching. And now I think about this because in, they were living under the old covenant. And I think if they could pray this boldly and cry out to God in they, this way, how much more confident should we be to cry out to God in this way? Because in the new covenant in Christ's blood, God has promised to do the very thing that we're talking about. And so this is praying according to his will. In Jeremiah 31, 33, we read this. This is God's commitment, Okay. So you don't have to twist God's arm. This is his commitment. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And now we know from the book of Acts, also with the Gentiles. It's not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike. Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so this is the difference between something external and something internal. The law written on tablets of stone and the law written on the human heart. This is what God does as we delight in his word, as we make it our intention to meditate and obey, and as we cry out to him. This is what God does. He writes his law on our heart. So it's no longer, you don't need, you don't need people telling you everything you're supposed to do. You're telling yourself from a deep internal place. You're just like, God, this is what I want. This is true. This is right. Lead me. And so we can have great confidence when we pray according to God's revealed will. Let me wrap up with one, one uh, story. Uh, years ago, I read this, this book called The Madonnas of Leningrad. Now, Madonna is a, Madonna's a, 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 a portrait of Jesus' mother, of Mary. It's a painting. And in Leningrad, in the, the Hermitage Museum, there were all these Madonna paintings. And, and the, the book was about World War II and the Germans laid siege to Leningrad. And the staff of the, the library, they and their families actually lived in the basement during the bombing of Leningrad, 2,000 of them. 
but as a labor of love, they took 1.1 million pieces of art. They removed it from the museum, put it in crates, and they sent it off to a, a safe place during the war. And one of the things they did with the paintings was they took the paintings out of the frame and they rolled them up in paper and packed them in crates and sent them away. But they took these empty picture frames and they held them back on the wall as a pledge that one day the paintings themselves would return. And apparently during the war, you know, soldiers, commanders, soldiers from the war, they would come back to Leningrad, they would come back to the Hermitage, and they would, because it was just such a dear place in their life. And apparently, accounts tell us there was one tour guide that knew the painting so well, that knew every piece of art, that he would take people on tours of the empty museum while the, the city was being bombed. And what the, the accounts tell us is that these paintings were so etched into the mind and the heart of this tour guide that he could describe with great detail and with great passion the colors and the texture and the story behind what was happening. And there are occasions in telling this story where people could almost see the painting in that empty frame. And the, the guide would turn around and would see these tough uh, officers in the army with tears coming down their faces. And I wonder, do you have a vision for experiencing God's word, having God's word so captivate your heart and your mind, etched in such a deep place in your heart? First of all, that you are that convinced that it's true and therefore, you are that convincing when you talk about it. I tell you what, if, we're, if we as a church are going to live out our mission, we have to be convinced and we have to be convincing. And it's not learning a script. It's letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And that's the vision of Psalm 119. That was Jesus' original vision as well. Jesus actually said, abide in me, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will be so transformed you will be so much like me that you can actually, actually ask whatever you want. And God says, okay, he will give it to you. May it be so in our lives. May it be so in this church, in this city, in our day. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do this work in our midst. God, we cry out to you. Would you give us a hunger for your word? May it not be said of us that we did very little with so much. God, you have given us so much. When it comes to your word, it is so accessible. It's so readily available to every single one of us. And so, God, rekindle our delight where necessary. God, for those here today who have never trusted in Jesus and, and received his spirit, we pray, God, that they would do that, turn to you. And, God, may this internal witness of the spirit prompt us to love your word, delight in your word. May we make it our intention to meditate and obey what you show us. And God, if you don't empower us, it will all be in vain. So God, we want to experience you. We want others to experience you. And so we cry out to you for this. May this week, may we, we seek you with great passion and experience your power, your insight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.